the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gap number two niner niner for uh, Thursday, November eighteenth, twenty ten. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cap, a premium show uh, for all of our premium subscribers. Thank you very, very kindly. Uh, this is our second premium show of November. There might be a third. I don't know. Uh, but I, uh, but we'll, t- we'll, we'll let you know. And you'll know. Uh, of course, I'm Dave Hamilton here from Durham, New Hampshire. And on the other end, of course, John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. I think we're alone now, John. Pete's flying today. So, uh, He's always flying. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's not. No, no, he's not. That's right. Um, yeah, so we've got a bunch of stuff to go through. Uh, let's let's start with this thing that has totally monopolized our um, our pre-show, and we'll just dive right in. Hello, uh, John, Dave, Pete. This is Tom from uh, Detroit. I'm just calling about the uh, Fire Sheep uh, thing that you mentioned and your last uh, premium episode <clears throat> and uh it, it, it's about uh, wpa wpa actually does protect you from fire sheep uh it it uh wpa negotiates a uh, a key when you log into the the router and then that key is used to uh, unencrypt your uh, or encrypt your your uh, your conversation with the router so it can't be uh can't be uh, stolen the same way right Okay, uh, and uh, I'm sure there's more we, we're going to talk about here. So, what I've learned, uh, and Fire Sheep is this Firefox plugin that uh, allows you to uh, allows the user of the plugin to sniff the traffic that goes by in the air and pull out the authentication information that's required to make them masquerade, allow them to masquerade as you. On sites like Facebook, Amazon, Google, etc. What we have learned since then is that FireSheep only FireSheep's not looking at the entire network. All it's doing is looking at your wireless network. So FireSheep does not work over Ethernet uh, based on all the tests that we've done here and based on everything we've read. And also, as Tom uh, pointed out, FireSheep does not work over an encrypted wireless network that's using WPA because each connection is being encrypted between the computer and the router. So you can sniff the traffic, but it's not going to mean anything to you because you don't have the key to decipher it. Is that uh, the, the, and I know there's more to talk about there, John, but you agree. Did I I get that right so far? I think you got it so far. Yeah. In general, I think the caution with this tool or just in general, like we found at a recent show we went to, is you got to be real careful on any open network where you just have to put in the SSID and not provide any sort of key. Because then, yeah, as as the creator of this says, it's really meant to to leverage what's happening on an open Wi-Fi network that, that doesn't use any sort of security. Right. Now, if you are on an open Wi-Fi network... Uh, we did talk about a couple of things last show uh, using a VPN or uh, even simpler 
connecting using HTTPS. And that also encrypts the connection, not just between you and the router. It actually encrypts it between you and the host to which you're connecting. So you've got, uh, you've got an encrypted connection there, but, uh, sites like Facebook don't support SSL for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know why, but, uh, I, I guess it's a slightly, slightly increased server load. And when you've got, you know, 500 million users or something ridiculous like that, then that kind of thing probably matters. Well, I think the thing is uh, more by default, Dave, it it doesn't because if um, it doesn't try to connect to Facebook with an HTTPS, it'll it'll turn you right around. And and before long, you'll see that S is gone. All right. Well, I'm typing in right now. I got HTTPS colon slash slash Facebook dot com. Yeah. Go ahead and log in. See but I see what you're saying is at some point it'll 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 switch back. Yes. To regular. Oh, that, all right. that was my experience with it. Yeah. Which is uh, which is a shame because it, you know, Google will allow you to connect with with HTTPS. But uh, and maybe Facebook will, too. I just I, I when I tried it, it I not. You're right. OK, so I just logged in and yeah, I'm on HTTP colon slash slash. So it undid the HTTPS. Yep. Yeah. Um. And if it worked with HTTPS to even get there once, then it works. There's no there's no more problem. I don't know why they're redirecting us back to the non uh, secure version, but they're, they're all set up for it. Uh, I think it's just some of their redirects point you there. If you if you take any Facebook link and uh, and put an S in front of it, it will work. But the links that you click on on the page are not secure. So. Well, anyway. I think the thing is, it, 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 because it's performing encryption, it, it does introduce some overhead to maintain a, that connection versus a regular one. And I guess when you're talking millions of people, I mean, you know, of course, they're not running on a single server, but, you know, that, that adds, uh, you know, load and you may have to buy more servers. So I guess they, yeah. in the interest of performance, will uh, switch that off when they think it's when they can. right. Yep. So anyway, so the, 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 the long and short of it is be very careful on unencrypted wireless networks but if you're on an, a wired network or an encrypted wireless network you don't have anything to worry about anything else on this before we move uh, on to our next no i'm going to play with it a bit more i'm okay. going to play with it a bit more the, cool. the, the the way it works is certainly not intuitive though when you install it in firefox both oh, no. you and i had a kind of rough time and that you gotta i had to manually open the sidebar that had the tool until i was able to to get it to show anything so right all right. Ron writes, uh, with regards to uh, Mac Geek Up 296, I use SugarSync. Uh, SugarSync has the advantage of syncing only folders that I designate in situ. Uh, there is no one special folder. It syncs seamlessly in the background. The files I designate are always perfectly in sync between my MacBook Pro and my aging Mac Pro. There is file sharing and other benefits as well. An iPhone and iPhone and iPad app are available and at any and any sync data is available on your mobile devices. It also works with Windows. It's five dollars per month per month for 30 gigabytes. But there is a free 30 day trial. I have no stock in the company. Just don't know how I'd get along without it. Uh, so that's uh, that's tip number one. Tip number two, he says another tidbit I never see mentioned, but is crucial to file sharing. When one makes a folder public and designates a user one must control or right click on the user. This is in sharing uh, system preferences, sharing and then file sharing. Uh, one must right click or control click on the user and select apply permissions to enclosed items. Otherwise, one cannot access any of the folders in the mounted volumes. So uh, thank you, 
Ron. That's uh, that's helpful stuff. Very uh, very interesting about Sugar Sync. Uh, I like that you have the ability to select folders. Dropbox is starting to give you some of that. Uh, again, Dropbox will give you two gigabytes, two and a half, as we talked about, uh, for free. But then, uh, but beyond that, you, you you've got a you've got a ante up. Um, but Dropbox, you you have one folder where everything is, but you can selectively disable subfolders therein. So depending on how you do it, you you could. Um, could manage this, but it sounds like SugarSync has a has a way of doing that. That's just a little bit better. Anything to add, John? Nope, I'm with you. All right, and our uh, our last tip before we get into questions from Jeff, he says several times in the last year I've tried hooking up my MacBook Pro to my LCD TV to watch movies. However, each time the picture is rather dark and desaturated, which makes it very hard to watch. Playing with the settings on the TV never works that well. Turning up the brightness helps some. But then the contrast is terrible and the picture is crummy. I finally found the problem. The Mac was setting the color profile for the TV to a generic VGA profile. After switching it to Adobe RGB, the brightness and gamma was much better. Saturation was great and it was a lot like watching movies on my cinema display. Okay, so what Jeff is talking about is if once you connect the the external monitor or TV or whatever it is, go into system preferences, displays, and then for that display, you'll see it will open up a window on each monitor and it's u- unique to each one. Uh, but you want to go to the, the, you know, the monitor that you want to edit and go to color. And he's using Adobe RGB. You could actually select any one of the profiles there and check it out. Or you can hit calibrate and create your own profile based on what you want to see. Uh, it'll kind of walk you through some steps. It'll tell you slide this slider until you see things a certain way and then move on to the next step. And you can use that to create a profile that that uh, perhaps is better for you. Yeah, and I wonder because there's a checkbox in there. I wonder if this would have prevented this uh, problem called show profiles for this this display only. Hmm. And I'm right now on my G5. All I have is Sync Master, which is happens to be the screen I have connected to that. Right. And on my MacBook, it says Color LCD, and that's the only one it shows. So I wonder if some point, yeah, he, he, the, someone may have unchecked that box and and selected the wrong one. Or as you point out, Calibrate is. Uh, I've never had to use that, but that's that's the the. Oh, that's fallback. fun. I, I've done that with almost every display I've gotten, just because I like to tweak around with stuff. Oh, right. yeah, it's fun. I mean, it. You know, I don't. I don't know if my eye and judgment is better than anyone else's, right? So, you know, you might come and say, oh my gosh, why is your screen so green? Or or whatever. But, you know, it is what it is. Works all right. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on to our questions here. And how come I can't find the question? I know I put them in here, John. Uh, apparently I didn't put them in here. Uh-oh. Makes me think I've got a syncing issue between my uh, my computer downstairs and my computer up here. Might have a, a Dropbox problem because I use Dropbox to sync my Yojimbo these days because Mobile Me was acting up. So I'm going a different way to find Rick's comment. And here we go. Uh, so John, uh, Rick says, ever since updating to the latest iTunes and Mac OS 10 versions, I get a box every time I start up iTunes that says, do you want iTunes to accept incoming network connections? Uh, 
I have the firewall enabled, but I have added iTunes to the exclusions list. I also reset warnings in iTunes, but all to no avail in eliminating the need to click on this except each time. Any thoughts would be great. All right, John, go. Okay, I got two things here. So one, I had the same thing happen, Dave, and I didn't really think anything of it. In the you know iTunes, uh, well, I clicked on the button and and I was happy. It wasn't a big deal. <laughs> but then when I got this message, that then I st- when when I saw this in our mailbox, then I thought, you know, this is really bothering me because it shouldn't be doing it. It's never done it before. I haven't changed my firewall settings or anything. Sure. <sighs> so did a little digging here and. The bottom line is the problem. Well, I'll tell you the command that I issued to find out that something was amiss with the iTunes application. So one of the settings in the firewall that I have activated and, and I trust uh, you know, works properly. Let me, let me bring it up here. So you get a security and then firewall. And Inside the checkbox. system preferences, right? System preferences, right. security, firewall. Okay. Yep. And I think it says, you know, allow signed applications. Let me get the exact word oh. here. I'm sorry. So there's an advanced button, and one of the checkboxes says automatically allow signed software to receive incoming connections, which sounds like a good thing. Now, we're not, we're not going to go into a lot of detail about what signed software is, but suffice to say, you know, signed software means that, that, that you trust who has uh, issued the software is, is a legitimate organization. Well, what Apple, what happens is you can um, Apple. I think they require it for, well, certainly for iPhone apps, right? But, but Mac apps can be code signed. I think that's what we're talking about here. Yes. Okay. So from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, but code signing, you get a certificate from Apple that says, yes, you are uh, John Braun. And then you bake this certificate when you build your application, you bake this certificate in and it says, yeah, this this app was written by John Braun and John Braun, you know, has used his his uh, code signature to do that. Is that is that right? Essentially, you're you're generating a signature based on the information in the the, the certificate and the keys that that are used to create the certificate. Okay, but it's a two part process. So you have a piece of it in that you sign the code. And then what happens is when it's on the Mac, the other part of the equation is done because since Apple has to issue this, so you get half of uh, to, to simplify it a bit because it's all public encryption and all that, but to simplify it, you have half of the, the puzzle and the, the other half of the puzzle is, is in Mac OS 10. Got it. Okay. So it'll check the application and say, okay, you know, did, you know, did someone that I authorized sign this software? And then we're not going to get into the math because that could be an entire podcast in and of itself. Sure. Okay. But it, but it essentially says that you've registered with Apple and Apple says that you're a developer. It is really, right. I mean, that it doesn't say anything more than that. Right. But, but that's, but it does say that. Okay. So the code is signed and you're at least on a, on some level, you're cool to develop for OS 10. Right. So I was surprised when this came up because iTunes, you know, is, is one of the applications that's signed. And yes. then I find that there's a command that you can execute on the terminal. Don't be afraid to verify if, if the signature is correct on a piece of software. And I type the following code sign space dash V as in Victor space slash application slash iTunes dot app. And what that's saying is, you know, verify the, that the signature on iTunes is correct. 
Now, if it's correct, you're not going to get anything back. But if it's not, you're going to get something like I got, which is, I don't even know what the heck this means. A sealed resource is missing or invalid. I'm like, what? Really? Yes. Like not a, not a seals in San Francisco Bay resource, but uh, it it could be. I I have no idea. I don't, I don't know what a sealed resource is versus an unsealed resource. So that indicated to me the signature was, was not correct. Now the way that I up, it and i suspect the way that uh, that rick did it as well was that he did it through software update okay what i'm suspecting is there was something missing or, or the install process didn't go quite as expected because it said the signature on this thing's not right so that's why it kept coming up and asking you know this question uh and there may have been other things wrong with it so what i did is trashed itunes tried to throw it away it came up here was a little hitch here it came up and said whoa 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 there's something called itunes helper running i'm i'm not gonna you can't empty the trash. I'm like, ah, okay. So go to activity monitor. You find the iTunes helper process, quit that. Then you can throw it away. And I downloaded. So rather than software update, I downloaded it right from Apple, downloaded iTunes, installed it, ran the code sign uh, command again. Everything was fine. Yeah. And that, okay. So that, and, that's and then an error message back. And then when I started up iTunes again, I didn't get that message. Good. And uh, Rick actually wrote back to us and said, yeah, what well, you suggested worked. So, okay. So, yeah. So th- th- it's interesting because Apple uses that code signature uh, for things like this, where you, you, you launch an app. If there's any permissioning that has to happen, it actually stores in a file somewhere inside OS 10. It says, okay, yeah, the, you know, the, the administrator of this computer has authorized this app to either run or talk on the network or whatever it is you authorized. And it stores the code signature. If a code signature exists, and if it does, then life's a whole lot more convenient for you because you authorize once and then you never have to think about it again. But if there's not a code signature in there, then what you and Rick saw is exactly what's going to happen. It's going to ask you every dang time because it has no way of remembering it. And it's also Apple's way of encouraging vendors to make sure their apps are code signed. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, I don't think you, you've done more development than I do. Maybe there's some political implications there, but as a user, I think the code signing thing is actually pretty cool. So it is, but even uh, what I saw on windows with earlier versions is that, you know, people were supposed to, but the problem is a lot of installers would come up and say, whoa, whoa, this, uh, you know, and it wasn't so much application software, but drivers and stuff like that. It would come up and say, whoa, it's not signed. You want to install it anyways. Right. And of course, you know, once you get in that case, uh, you know, Apple makes it pretty transparent that this is happening. Yeah. Most um, people wouldn't even know. I, I remember, you know, when apps started coming out with, uh, with you know that were code signed, and I would see that in like the change log or something, and oh yeah, now our our app is code signed. Like what the heck is? Who cares? Why does that matter? And uh, the more I read, the more I realized, oh, actually that's kind of cool. Okay, good. Go ahead. You know, go forth and prosper. All right, uh, you talked about killing off that little iTunes Connect thing. So I think the the question that we have from Mac is a nice little segue here. Mac writes. I have a MacBook Air running 10.6.4, which when this question came in was the latest. I noticed that it was getting quite hot and the battery was draining rapidly. So I looked in Activity Monitor and found a process called Space Station D that was using 50 to 60 percent of my CPU. Uh, I found an application in my downloads called Space Station that looked like it had never been installed. I tossed the folder as well as a plist file. I killed the process. It came right back. I rebooted. I killed the process. It came right back. I sudo killed the process. It came right back. 
Uh, note, since I tossed the folder and emptied trash, Spotlight no longer finds anything by the name Space Station. I safe booted. It was gone. I logged into my guest account and Space Station D is not there. Unfortunately, it appears to live in all my backups as well. How do I shoot down this Space Station? Uh, as an aside, I vaguely remember downloading something a long time ago that was going to tell me when the International Space Station was overhead, but I don't ever remember using it. How do I shoot down this space station? John? <laughs> Not that we support shooting down space stations. Oh, no, that's right. But it's going to take more than a rocket launcher, I tell you. And I remember solving a similar problem for someone. So here's what's happening. And this gets kind of geeky. This really gets underneath the covers more of, of how Unix operates. So there are a couple of folders on your system. Uh, one of them is your home folder slash library slash launch agents. And another is regular start at the top slash library slash launch agents. Yep. And what's in there is a bunch of plist files. And what these plist files do is um, submit information to something called launch D. Launch D is like the new grand unified way that uh, Apple's Unix would like you to use to start things up when, when the system runs. Would it be fair to call it a process manager, kind of the, the granddaddy sure. major sure. process? Okay, good. Yeah, I think before there were there were a number of different ways to, to run things when you Sorry. started up the OS, and it was a real mess. So at some point, Apple said, no, 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 let's use LaunchD. I think it was Leopard. I think it was 10.5 when LaunchD was, became, it might have been, it might have been 10, no, I think, I think 10, I don't know, whatever. Now it is. That's all that matters. At least, it was at least 10.5. It may have been 10.4. Right. Now, what you can do is, and usually these files have names that, that hint at, you know, the process they're invoking. So I'm sure the plist file that invoked this had, you know, space station or, or something similar in its name. So what I did is I started examining some of the plist files in my launch agents uh, folder. And these are plist files like anything else. And uh, you can open them with property editor, or BB editor, or, you know, a lot of different programs. And there's one flag in these, Dave, and here is the key. There's one flag in the plist file yeah. called keep alive. Oh, so shoot down and, the space station and it relaunches into the air. So what that says to me, yes, yeah, so what keep alive. So it's optional because there may be processes where if the user deems it necessary to kill it off, it goes away. For whatever reason, when this software was installed and uh, something was put in launch agents, these guys decided, you know, this is so important that even if somebody kills it off, but this is my best guess is that's what keep alive does. Okay. Yeah. It sounds reasonable based on the, the, the what was happening is yeah. that it's like, Oh, you went away. Okay. Well, I'll start you up again. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be really handy. If you've got some process that should be running all the time, if it dies, it's great to have launch D kind of sitting there saying, Hey, wait, that process isn't running. Let's fire it back up again. That, you know, that that's helpful in when you want it to be helpful. <laughs> right. So one way would be to look at these plist files, you know, to find the appropriate one and get rid of it. Another thing is that there's something that still works. It's kind of dated, but it's called Lingon. And that will let you view uh, in a nicer way the various things that are in launch agents. And there, there are a couple of other folders that contain things that happen when the system starts up. So my suggestion was look for the plist file that, you know, has a name that resembles this process being started. Toss that, restart your system. You should be fine. And uh, I think the email that we got back um, from Mac was a uh, bingo. <laughs> Great. That's awesome. <laughs> Which, to me indicates success. So, uh, but unless you know that, that, that stuff is there, this could be an infuriating problem. So I, I was going to 
investigate another solution. And I started to, and John, when you listen to the show back, you'll hear it. There was a little stuttering in your Skype stream because I was doing some things that were about mm. to cause, uh, it, 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 you were intelligible. Uh, and I apologize to both you and the listeners, but uh, there, there's an audio inter- interrupt thing that happens when you start crunching on the disc a lot. Uh, and what I wanted to do was I figured, yeah, OK, this is one way of finding this thing. But let's say he just wants to get rid of the file, because if if he gets rid of Space Station D, doesn't matter how uh, uh, how obsessed Launch D is, it's not going to start a process that it doesn't that doesn't exist. Right. So and he said he looked in spotlight for it. Well, there is Spotlight only by default searches user files. Um, and John, I'm going to ask you to uh, take a look at your Spotlight on your Mac. When you do a search, you'll see a little plus. As soon as you start doing a search in the Finder, you see a little plus button uh, up here below the uh, below the header and before the search results. Is that right, John? Yes. Spotlight. Spotlight. So you're in the Finder. And uh, maybe I can do this while I'm talking because it's not going to cut out Skype, but maybe it is. So, you know, if I start searching for uh, whatever, you see a thing where it says search this Mac contents, file name, whatever you're looking for. And then over on the right, there's a little plus sign. Uh, And this is in the subheader in the finder between where you're typing the term you're searching for and the results. And if you hit the little plus plus sign, you get a a little uh, a little drop down option. And on most systems, kind is any is the first thing you see there. And what you want to do is change kind. And you're looking for system files because by default, system files are hidden from spotlight searches. If you do not see system files in this list, you can click other and pick it from that list. But that's a it's a much bigger list. Uh, But you want to say you want to turn on uh, system files. Uh, or you want to say system files either aren't included or are included. And when you choose are included, it's going to search everywhere on your Mac. And that is going to find where that uh, space station D uh, the actual demon itself, the little binary file is, and you should be able to delete that right from there. And, and that will, that will keep it from running. It won't get rid of the P list file that, tells launch D to start it. So launch D will actually have an error in its log saying, Hey, I, I tried to start this, yes. but it doesn't exist, but th- th- that's not a, you know, that's not a huge deal. Uh, better to get rid of both, of course, but, uh, but that is the way to find the space station. And, and as you said, Mac, shoot it down. So, right. You're correct. Cause I, I remember someone else wrote in, in the past, and they had the problem that the launch D was being persistent and, and it, it cluttered the console. So it's not, you know, I, I don't think it was consuming any, Right. You know, processor, but it was just blowing everything else out of the console because that, that it was doing that every every second or so. Yeah, right. Yeah, it will. It will obsess over it because, as we said, that's uh, that's its job. All right. Uh, I have a we have a question from another another Jeff uh, writes about a year ago. I purchased notebook from Circus Ponies because of their sponsorship of the show. I'm now looking at Yojimbo as notebook is not the best for me for me to use for my note scraps. The problem I'm running into is this. Where do I draw the line between an item that goes into Notebook or something that goes into Yojimbo? They are both great programs, but because they overlap, uh, it's difficult to know what goes where. Okay. Uh, They do overlap. And my guess is that many people um, could use one and and never really find a need for the other, uh, you know, and vice versa. But but I do see that 
for me, the usage, the, the usage cases for them are compartmentalized. Uh, I might feel differently if I only used one or the other, but to me, it seems like notebook is best for organizing content whose general category or topic is known at the outset and something for which, you know, you're going to have a lot of data. For example, a class you're taking, uh, an event you're planning, uh, you know, something you're organizing or or even, you know, just just something where you've got one major category that you you know, you're going to assemble a lot of information about and you're going to pump all this stuff in. Whereas for me, on the flip side, you know, Jimbo, I use for kind of everything else, little scraps of information. I just throw them in there and then I categorize them later. Uh, so it doesn't matter what the category is. I just throw it into Yojimbo and then later on I figure out, oh yeah, okay, this is like a little tech tip. So I'm going to put this in my tech tips collection. And then that way when I'm looking for it, I know, oh yeah, yeah, that's a tech tip. Fine. Uh, and Yojimbo will show me everything that, that has no categorization. So if I want to, I can go back through and say, oh yeah, I should, I should categorize these so that I can find them when I'm looking for them. So, so to me, that's, that's where the differences are. Again, you know, if you only had one or the other, you could probably go go just fine but this is a question we've got uh jeff you're not the you're not the first to ask uh it, you know is there a difference between these and what is it so that that's my take on it um and i figured a, a premium show is the perfect place to answer a because it seems like it's mostly you premium subscribers who uh who have asked this uh, in the past and i guess that's probably because you folks are uh happy to spend money on the stuff we talk about here which is great uh i guess yeah uh, but, uh, and we appreciate that. And as do our, our sponsors, of course, but, uh, but yeah, so there's the, there's my answer on it. I, I don't think you use either one of those. Is that right, John? <clears throat> um, not often. Okay. So you're the expert. Okay. Okay. Uh, moving on to Javier. Javier has an interesting question. He says, I'm going to have a listener, uh, but I'm writing because I need your help. I recently updated from a 2007 white MacBook 13 inch to a 2010 Mac mini. I set it up as a home theater and I love this thing except for two nagging issues. Issue the first, I cannot add any items to my startup items list. Only the ones listed in the folder at the time I made the switch from my old Mac to the new one stayed. Anything else I try to add promptly disappears as soon as I log out or restart my Mac. I have fixed permissions, run all the scripts I could think of in Onyx, but the problem still persists. I'm running the latest version of Snow Leopard with all the updates. Also, I ran a test creating a separate user account, and that account works fine. Anything I add to the startup items folder, uh, there sticks and loads when I reboot. Also, when I switched computers, I used Migration Assistant to copy my user settings as well as the applications uh, in case this matters. Uh, he then says, uh, my airport card, I have a second issue. My airport card seems to refuse to shut down. The Mac mini is connected to the internet via directly via ethernet cable into my airport extreme, uh, which itself is connected to my Comcast modem and also via ethernet. Uh, as I do not need my airport card to be running, I've tried shutting it off, but it refuses to do so. Other than that, I've disconnected my ethernet cable from my Mac to test it and it works fine. Okay. So, uh, this is a very interesting thing. The The airport problem sounds like there might be a driver issue. And the reality is that up until 10.6.5 came out, uh, there was no way to install airport drivers um, 
into from from a default snow leopard you could the only way you could get airport drivers for a mac mini was on the disc that came with it so if you took a snow leopard dvd and updated it to 1064 uh there was no way you would not have the correct airport drivers and you could have a mixed mishmash of things mm. yeah it, it was a real mess and i had to I, my brother and i had to figure this out because he had OS 10 server on his Mac mini and he wanted to go to OS 10. So we had to actually go and pull the airport drivers out of OS 10 server and, and kind of, you know, migrate them in. But, uh, so that makes me think, I know you said you use the migration assistant to get all your stuff over, but if I'm looking at this and thinking, you know, it's possible these two problems are related, you know, did you pull anything else over from one system to the other? You know, are you, did, are you sure you didn't clone the drive or, or anything like that? That, you know, hopefully 1065 fixes your airport issue. But uh, but, it, you know, as I was as I read this question, it was like ah, these these two things might not be unrelated. But uh, so so that, you know, it may be that a, a reinstall of OS 10 um, from the Mac mini disks was was necessary here, although a 1065 might might at least fix the airport issue. As for the. um the weird startup list thing got, you know, I, that's all stored in a, in a P list file. And if it works in one user account, but not in the other man and permissions aren't an issue, I would, you know, permissions have been, been ruled out as an issue. I, I would blow away that P list file. Uh, it's, um, it's home library preferences, and then login window dot P list, delete that and immediately reboot and come back in and see if you can modify the startup items. You're going to lose whatever was there. So make sure you remember or take a screenshot of what was there. And then, uh, and then that, that should do it. That should do it for you. I can't think of any, anything else that it would be, especially if it works in a test user account. You got any mm. ideas, John? No, I think, yeah, that the file is somehow uh, corrupted. If it's not permissions. Because, yeah, that's the only thing that I would think it would kind of yell at you if, um, you know, if you're trying to add something and you can't update the file. But. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't I, I it, it should. But, you know, OS 10, it, it's interesting. It's important to remember that most everything you do, especially in system preferences, you know, most everything you're doing when you're clicking your mouse or or choosing something from a keyboard or typing in or whatever that is an overlay. What you're seeing is not actually where those settings are being stored, right? It, it's a, it's a very well-built overlay to modify essentially text files and they're, you know, XML and they might be binary in the end, but essentially you're writing text out to a file. So there are edge cases where the overlay and the file that it's modifying are out of sync with each other. And maybe, you know, maybe it, maybe OS 10 thinks that it's writing to this file and, and, you know, maybe it writes to it, but it doesn't reread from it. So it doesn't know to realize that the change that it thought it made, you know, it's got to make some assumptions at some point, right? I mean, it obviously OS 10 is extremely robust, but clearly there's some, some points at which it sort of stops and, and maybe this is one of them. I don't know. Yeah, and I know you and I noticed the the whole network thing, or, or the, the the point at which Max um, 
where migration assistant wouldn't work, I think, is especially when they introduced the uh, i5 and i7 machines, is that the, the processor was different enough that the uh, kernel or something very deep in the OS was was not. But migration uh, assistant should work for that. I migrated from PowerPC to Intel and it worked. Actually, no, you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, doing a direct copy of a drive because right. the, because the, the yeah parts of the kernel deep in the OS were just a little different. Yes. I mean, I would think, you know, an Intel processor is an Intel processor, but the i5 and i7, I think, were different enough that, yep. that the old stuff just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Uh, let's see what Jerry says. Let me pull up the right thing here. Jerry says, I have a specific and very odd problem with Apple Mail. I'm running Mail on my ancient iBook G4, running Leopard 10.5.8, all updates applied. When I use Gmail, while I use Gmail for most of my own mail, I also have mail accounts for several clients that force me to use Pop or IMAP accounts in a regular email program. My problem is simply this. I cannot access the preferences for Apple Mail. Using either the hotkey or the menu item causes the menu to flash once and then nothing happens. I'm right back in the mail application as if I'd done nothing at all. This does, of course, make it impossible to change the mail server settings. I did some research on Apple support and found a couple of old notes about this problem. None of these solutions seem to work. I've trashed the prefs file. Mail just builds a new one, which it still can't access. I'm at wit's end. Any suggestions? Wow. This is interesting because nope. my, my first gut, yes. right? You know, my, my, and, I, and I put this in the show to, to kind of spur this little conversation here. I, my, my gut reaction would be, well, yeah, you know, quit out of mail, find your mail preferences file and get rid of it. And he says he's done that. Now, let, let's go through this and just make sure we're finding the mail preferences file. So it would be uh, home library preferences and then i believe it's com.apple.mail if i'm not mistaken and i'm looking here for the benefit of all involved so we've got yeah com.apple.mail.plist that's one place to look but i'm guessing that's the preference file he went and removed uh also in mail however is a uh, uh sorry in uh in your library folder is a folder called mail. And before you start digging in here and you're going to start digging in here, uh, but before you do, you should know that this is where all of your mail is stored. So don't go blowing away your library mail folder without knowing uh, full well that you're going to get rid of every bit of email that mail.app sees on your system. However, if you come in here, you're going to see some other things. You're going to see an envelope index, uh, you're going to see default counts. You're going to see uh, message rules dot P list. You're going to see message sorting dot P list uh, and and some other things as well. Smart mailboxes dot P list. So there are more preferences that are not part of the core mail preferences file. And my guess is that one of these is damaged. Uh, the envelope index is actually for keeping track of your messages uh, and there are times when deleting that is the right move. But in this case, you're not having a problem with your messages. You're having a problem with your preferences. So I, I would look at the the rules message rules dot P list. Uh, that might that might be one where you've got some corruption out there because there can be a lot of data 
in that smart mailbox is probably not because it's pulling that every time you launch mail and the preferences wouldn't have anything to do with it. But, but preferences is where you edit rules and it's possible that, you know, your mail app is set to go to the rules pane of your preferences every time you go there. Cause that's the last place you visited. So, uh, so that to me, that's, that's the first there, the next place to go because it, it sounds like a P list file issue. It's just, the question is, you know, which one, any, any, any thoughts there, John? Absolutely. So I noticed some other things in here. Now, I've never looked in here either, so we're kind of winging this as far as how to solve this. But um, another thing I noticed in the mail folder, Dave, is that there's a folder within the mail folder for each of your email accounts. And within that, it includes, uh, it appears, it includes the name of the mail server. And I'm wondering if... In the folder name itself. Yes. Correct. So I'm wondering if that folder itself, maybe the permissions are wonky on that folder so when you try to open the preferences part of the you know part of what the preferences are doing is trying to digest this folder and if something's wrong with it or it's not there i don't know it it may prematurely close now of course another place you know our favorite place to look here dave is that you know some earth shattering like that happens because that's a pretty big deal because i I tried from scratch to create a you know mail account and you know everything went went swimmingly I, i didn't run into any preference issues sure um, no, nor but there may be something in the console that's saying, whoa, whoa, I can't find this or permission. And, and their error processing is just not very elegant. And rather than giving you an error, it just gives up. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Console would be the place to look. And, and the trick there is get console launched first. Click on all messages and then go do whatever you want to do in mail and try and access the preferences and then immediately switch to the console app and look and see what was reported very recently. It should all have timestamps. So, you know, match that up with your computer's current time and, and see if you can find the, an event that matches the time when you try to do the preferences that, that might give you some insight there. Yeah. And you can, you know, type in the search field mail just to filter out all the other garbage. That's so smart though. I never, I never think to use the active search filters in console and I totally should because it would, you know, filters out all the, all the, all the cruft. Well, the other thing is that you can dig down. Um, I don't have this off the top of my head, but there are, I think it's in the files category in the console. There's, there's a couple of hierarchies there and there may be a specific log file for, for the mail application. I'm sure there is somewhere, Yeah. But, you know, the lazy way to do it rather than, you know, digging through that. Cause there's a lot of stuff there is just to, you know, do I think all messages and just, yeah, use the, uh, the search feature. Yeah, that's, that's good. I like the search feature. You're going to need to remind me of that from time to time. Okay. Friend. Use the search feature, Dave. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, all right. Moving on to Mark. Mark writes, uh, I have a problem with my three and a half year old Mac mini overheating and crashing. Uh, I'm running 10.6.5 and connected to a second generation Drobo external Blu-ray drive and laser printer. I use the Mac mini as a print file and iTunes server. It serves two Apple TVs which it does with no problem. The overheating happens when I rip a DVD with handbrake or a Blu-ray with Moea Blu-ray ripper. Uh, And I'm curious, Mark, I want to hear more about this. Uh, And about 20% of DVD cases and in nearly all Blu-ray rips, the Mac literally overheats and keels over. However, as a temporary measure, I have been thinking outside the box and freezing a pint glass of water and placing this on top of the mini as a heatsink. This bizarrely works and keeps the CPU temp to about 180, 190, which drops after the rip. 
But this is obviously no solution. I think the problem is temperature control. Maybe the fan isn't working properly or the airway is blocked. The final piece of the puzzle is that this issue didn't occur before I updated recently to 10.6.5. Has the temperature setting changed? So far, I have blown out the airway with compressed air. I've tried to find out if a fan is working okay, but can't find reference to it in the system profiler. And I've done a bit of Googling and found some fan control software, but none not put them in as I didn't think it was any use unless I know the fan is fine. I'm also thinking that maybe I'm asking the mini to do th- to, to do things it doesn't have the power to do. So would a RAM update help? Or is this issue the 10.6.5 update? Should I roll back? And if so, how would I do it? All right. So... It's a 1.83 gigahertz core duo Mac mini. So it's not 64 bit, but that wouldn't, you know, I guess they, I guess there is a 64 bit version of hand handbrake out, but not Mac, the Ripper, any of that. Uh, I guess he wasn't using Ripper. He was just using handbrake. So, but it sounds like his problem is happening when he is maxing out his CPUs for extended periods of time. Now, John, I know there's no, that, that, that shouldn't happen. I, I do things very similar to this. I don't do the Moea Blu-ray thing, but I do use Handbrake regularly on at least one of my machines. And so the CPUs sit at 100% for, you know, two hours at a at a clip and it's fine. The, the fans kick up. It does what it's supposed to do and everything is fine. So that's what he's describing shouldn't happen or should it? Shouldn't. Well, I, I would agree with you. I, you know, any machine be a Mac or something else. If, if all the, you know, insides are working properly, when things get hotter, the fans or whatever mechanism they use to, uh, take heat away should turn on. Right. So, so I'm with you. Um, you know, I, I got to applaud him for the cleverness of the, uh, the, the liquid heat sink there, though I'd be kind of nervous having a glass of water near my computer. Yeah, what he needs to um, do is get some uh, some some freon, right? Right, and, uh, and do it that way. Encase the whole thing in in some cool inert liquid. Yeah, liquid nitrogen. I think was another oh, uh, good one. I think didn't, great they, idea. didn't they do that with the craze that they used liquid nitrogen to cool them? Was it nitrogen or was it freon? Craze? I thought it was freon, and they they kept running it through a compressor to cool it off. Yeah, the, the, those things got very hot. So yeah. the first problem here, Dave. All right, so I think he's on the right track here in in trying to figure out what could be wrong. Now, I would agree that if the machine is not working properly in that the fans are not coming on for whatever reason, then I, uh, I would say the machine is doing exactly what it should in that uh, most processors, the Intel included, you know, have some sort of mechanism to say how warm it is. And once it gets to a certain point, it should say, you know, I'm... Uh, I don't want to fry myself. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to shut down or something else in the machine should do this saying, all right, even, even though this shouldn't happen, it's getting too hot and I, I, right. I got to shut off some sort of hardware fail safe. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah cause there is uh, because there are multiple temperature sensors in the machine and it sounds like I, I uh, we asked, I, I'm not sure what he's using, but he has something that's showing the, the, the status of one or more of the temperature sensors. Yeah. Cause he says, what, you know, it's getting up to 180, 190 Fahrenheit. Right. I see. That's right. Um, so the first thing that I would do, Dave, and, and I was surprised, but how do you know if the fans are working short of listening very closely? And as far as I could find, Dave, there is no way with the standard Mac OS X install to tell what the fan speed or speeds are, because there's almost always more than one fan. 
That's right. Yeah, no, I, I would, uh, I, well, I would use iStat menus because it's going to give you all the information you want, temperature and fan yes. speed. And you can, and you can adjust your fan speed with it. So that, that would be my advice. Or another one that I have, we'll link to this, of course, is yep. SMC fan control is another one where you can, I think, similar to iStat, you can both view the speed of the fans and most machines I've seen, I think, you know, they're, I think they're always spinning at about 2000 RPM or something. Or depends, at least, uh, depends on, on the, the computer. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. So on the MacBook, I, by default, they're always spinning at 2000 and you can barely hear them. And then you'll hear them as, as the rotation speed increases. Um, I would do that. I suspect one or more. I'm not, I'm not sure how many fans are in that machine. One or more of the fans is, is not doing what it should. Yeah. And, and I've seen, a, a computer with a bad fan before and, and SMC fan control and, and really anything that's reading that reading from the fan uh, will tell you that the fan's not spinning. So if, if in fact that's the problem, uh, then, then that'll fix it. It also could be that for whatever reason, you know, that isn't, uh, it's an older machine. It's not that old, right? But, it, but it is an older machine. Somebody at Apple may have screwed something up in the testing. 1065 might have had different tolerances for um for you know for fans and I don't know. Maybe they maybe they made some changes to, you know, lower uh, change fan speeds or change the temperatures at which they kick on. And somebody might have simply screwed something up and the fans in your machine are not kicking on by default when they should. Again, SMC fan control or iStat menus would uh, allow you to kind of take control of that and adjust those settings. You might be able to, if you can crank up the fans, then you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. And I think he's already taken care of. And the only other thing, but again, I think he made, made sure of this is that, you know, especially the mini, there's certainly a way where you could set it up where you're either blocking or, you know, like you don't want to put it on top of uh, any sort of insulator, but, but I'm assuming that it's in a nice location and there's nothing, you know, close to it that they could block airflow or, you know, keep the heat inside. Right. right. That don't have anything on top of it other than that glass of chilled water. Right. Right. Because you feel the top of a mini or actually, you know, even even my uh, time capsule and uh, and it gets pretty, uh, it's pretty toasty. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's interesting. Um. All right. Let's, uh, I think we got time for one more. You want to do Trevor here, John? Why not? Yeah, that one made me happy. <laughs> okay, good. All right, so this is a this is definitely uh, a very geeky one, uh, but but fun, especially for our uh, our own Mister Braun here. So uh, I have a problem. Trevor writes, I'm using a 13 inch MacBook running 10.65 Snow Leopard. I just downloaded Xcode 3.2.4 and iOS SDK 4.1 for programming iPhone apps. However, when I opened Xcode, I got an error message. When I clicked continue. Uh, another one came up. I downloaded some sample code to mess around with called photo picker. When I first tried to build and run it, it failed. Uh, uh, what did I do wrong? John, what did Trevor do wrong? What happened? Trevor did absolutely nothing wrong because, so I've been, you know, learning Xcode slowly, and, but and, surely. And I guess I should point out that the, um, the error message says something about base SDK missing, right? There were a couple of windows. It, it, that actually wasn't an error message. So he okay. was getting dialogues that gave error messages. But So here's what led me to, to, to the solution here. And I did figure it out. So 
he downloaded this project uh, and I think, yeah, it's called iPhone photo picker and you can actually, I think get it at code.google.com slash P slash. And, and we'll link to this, uh, but it's a nice little sample application. So I thought, you know, wow, that's weird. His Xcode must be screwed up or something. I don't know. So I downloaded that. And with uh, many development environments, in addition to all the code, whether it be C or basic or whatever the heck it is, you usually get something called a project file. And this kind of brings everything together in that, you know, it'll point to all the libraries and all the source code and hopefully make the project portable. So if you want to give it to someone else, rather than them having to build it from scratch and assemble all these libraries and source files, which can be a pain in the neck, you just give them all that stuff and the project file. And in theory, they should be able to load it into their development environment and compile it and everything's cool. Here's uh, so what I did is I downloaded this and, you know, I dutifully clicked on the project file, clicked on, you know, build and run. And I got the same error he got. And I'm like, Whoa. Oh, I'm like, Oh no. Cause I know what I'm doing. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I know how to use X code. Then here's what caught my eye as you mentioned, Dave. So it wasn't an explicit error message, but it was something that didn't look quite right. So in the upper left-hand corner of the Xcode window, yes, it's going to list the SDK that it's using. And in, in the case of Xcode, you're probably either going to be using the iOS SDK or the macOS, whatever, SDK, SDK being Software Development Kit. And we're not going to go into details of what that is. But you need one of those present somewhere in order to create a, a program. And it's usually downloaded with Xcode. Now, here's the problem, though, is that, okay, and in the section of Xcode where it indicates the SDK being used, uh, where was it? You read it to me. I'm trying to look at it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it said base SDK missing. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of the base SDK missing um, yeah. <laughs> SDK. <laughs> I'm not aware of a product called base. So what I'm going to uh, assume is that Something that it expects there is missing. And here's how I found out what it was. So within Xcode, you double click on the project file and it'll open an info window that has all sorts of nitty gritty information about the, the project itself. And here's what caught my eye. In the base SDK section of that project window, here's what I saw. It said iPhone device 3.0 and in parentheses, missing. Ah, whoops. So here's what happened. Whoever built this pro whoever created this project file was using the iPhone device 3.0 SDK. And the problem was, is neither I um, or Trevor apparently have that SDK in our machine. So when we tried to build the project, got it. Now the thing is it didn't say, and this is kind of a finger wag at, um, you know, at Xcode. I mean, some of the error messages, I mean, you saw the screenshots, they made absolutely no sense. It didn't say, dude, you don't have this SDK. <laughs> it was bringing up all sorts of scary stuff. So basically what I did is clicked in that window, and then it'll list all the SDKs that are on the machine. So I figured, ah, I'll pick uh, iPhone device 4.0. I think he said he's up to 4.1, but I don't have 4.1 yet, but I have 4.0. So all I did was change that, build it, and then I got another error. But this was a different error. So it compiled, but then I got an error saying, oh, code signing error. And that's because, so that's better. So what, yeah. it, what, it, what that said to me is it was able to build the application, but it wasn't able to do code signing. And it says we kind of covered before. Oh, isn't this neat how it kind of comes together? So all apps on the iDevices require code uh, signing. signing. Right. 
but you got to do something special to set up for that. And apparently my system's not set up properly for that yet because you got to generate keys. You got to get their certificate. You got to do that whole thing. So I'll, I'll fix that later. But that's only if you're trying to compile an actual application. The other choice that you have, uh, and this is in that menu. So once you select the right SDK, you're going to you can click on the first window that you see. And there's going to be two choices. There's going to be device and there's going to be simulator. Ah, so you compile for the simulator and then you're all right. Which doesn't require code signing. What it does is it runs it in the iPhone simulator on your computer. And once I collect, I se- selected simulator. Good to go. Everything worked. Awesome. So, so the problem here is a, a, a not very nice project file cool. uh, mechanism. In my opinion, it, yeah. it should have come up and said, dude, the SDK is not here. But why don't you get Because I actually tried. I thought the SDKs were missing on my computer. So I tried installing them and that that didn't help because that wasn't the problem. Right. 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 Interesting. All right. All right. So uh, a couple of things to go through here. We have uh, this, of course, is was however you want to look at it. Uh, show number two ninety nine, which means that our next show is show number three hundred, which is, you know, a milestone in at least in base ten. Uh, and so, and since we use base 10 to identify the shows, we might as well acknowledge this milestone. We've done, uh, we've done some different things in the past for show 100 and 200. John and I kind of did walks down memory lane. We've got something that we're putting together. I think we're going to have quite a few guests, uh, coming on the show for number 300. And if we can make it all work, we will stream the audio live. I think we'll use Ustream, but, uh, video may be a little overkill for what we're trying to do. So, uh, so, but we're going to try and stream the audio live if possible. Um, if, of course, it'll be pushed out to all the feeds once it's recorded. Uh, but if you want to know when that is happening, just read MacObserver.com. We will have something up by Monday morning. So Monday is the uh, the 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 first day of the week after Sunday. <laughs> Let me pull up my calendar here and tell you what date Monday is. But whatever this next coming Monday is. Um, and I'm totally lost. 22nd. So by the morning of the 22nd, we will... Uh, we will have something up on TMO indicating when that's going to happen, when that's going to go live. And we'll also push something out on our Twitter account, uh, which, of course, is Twitter.com slash MacGeekGab. So you can follow that there. You could follow John at Twitter.com slash John F. Braun. You can follow me at Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton. Uh, you can contact us. I know you folks know how to, but you can email us premium at MacGeekGab.com. Right, John? Absolutely. I think. I said premium at MacGeekGab.com. Does that oh, work for I'm, you, John? <laughs> Sleep with us. Premium at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> That's uh, what you said, right? I said premium at MacGeekGab.com is what I Good. said. Good. Just want to make sure you said premium. I said, no, no, no. Premium. <laughs> 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is... Four, three, three, five. That's right. You can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab. You can leave iTunes comments and all that good stuff. Uh, we did publish an article uh, detailing the Macworld Expo Hotel uh, deal with the upgraded rooms that we have at the Intercontinental. Um, so if you have any questions about that, you can go there. But essentially the deal is use our special link, sign up for your room, and really that's it. However... Uh, just to make sure you get what you're supposed to get, we've set up a special email address that you can email in, send us your confirmation number, 
We'll make sure with the hotel that you're taking care of. We'll, we'll contact them uh, once the event is closer. And if you do email us at that address, we'll put you on a list and make sure you get tickets for uh, Cirque du Mac and you know, anything else that we can do for you. So um, I think... I think that's it, John. We're out of here. We, I want to thank Michael Johnston from We Have Communicators. Uh, he converts this to AC, and of course, the bandwidth is provided by Cashfly. That's it. Cool. 300 next. The, the last of the 200s is almost over. Hmm. The 200s were good to us. I yes, wonder, they were. I wonder how the 300s will be. I'm hoping even better. 300. Like 300 pod. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, have a, uh, have a great weekend. And uh, John, is there anything you might, uh, might want to end our 200s with? Is there anything you might want to tell them? <laughs> I just remind everybody, don't 